When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, Happy New Year, and welcome to The Political Party, the first episode of The Political Party in 2021. And today's guest is Tracy Crouch, the former sports minister, and she's absolutely brilliant. And this is a great conversation about where her politics came from, about her values, about why she resigned from government, and just, I mean, it's often, it's just often the small detail that is the most fascinating stuff. How you technically, and I don't mean as in on a technicality, but what does resigning from government actually involve uh, and taking the decision and whether there was any regret about it and why that decision was taken. Uh, and that is a really good conversation about how a minister leaves the government, but also um, about why Tracy specifically chose to leave and, um, and over the specific issue of fixed odds betting terminals and, and the problems that gambling can cause in society. We also talk a lot about her beloved Tottenham Hotspur, about being a fan of the NFL. Uh, as a former sports minister, of course, there's a fair bit of sports chat in here, not just sports fandom, but the politics of sport and what that involves. Being a female sports minister and the way that that meant she was treated by people. Being a conservative sports minister and the way that meant she was treated by people. So a whole loads of other things. There is also... a a very uh, frank and honest conversation about uh, Tracy's cancer. She was diagnosed with breast cancer in June last year and about how she found out and dealing with that in the same year as uh, a pandemic, um, which uh, I appreciate. I need to just tip you off about because, um, you know, uh, these are sensitive matters. So fair warning that, uh, that that's coming up. But it's just such a great conversation with someone who's really funny and deals with things in such a positive spirit and in such a, an optimistic way. So it's a, it's a really uplifting conversation, just in so many ways. Uh, we also talk about the NFL, um, which I think, you know, I, I realise I test you as an audience with, the, with normal football, let alone American football. So uh, apologies in advance that there's a fair bit of football chat on this. But I began um, by talking to Tracy and asking her about the biggest news of this week. Uh, I'm always uh, excited about any cup final, um, but I'm particularly excited to see Spurs in a cup final. Um, it feels like it's been a long time since we've had silverware. It has been a long time since we've had any silverware. I was in um, Madrid for the Champions League final and uh, it was just incredible, um, but um, sadly didn't quite work out how we planned um and it i have to say it it was a good game i enjoyed watching well actually it was a dull game to be perfectly honest <laughs> <laughs> but the result was right yeah i mean it's I, I didn't realize Mourinho had won the league cup so often because as a forest fan clough i think it had the record for a while with four and then obviously as years have gone by other people have taken over but i, I didn't realize Mourinho had got his hands on it so often so the omens are quite good and there's a one in the year which, as you know, for every Spurs fan, you know, we, we only ever think we win things when there's a one in the year. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think this might be it. This could be our year. 
Um, but that said, I am very well known for being one of the most pessimistic Spurs fans. Um, and uh, I, I'm regularly mocked for not sort of kind of, you know, being very sort of kind of optimistic about our chances. Um, and so I always think it's the hope that kills you. Um, so I'm just trying to remain, you know, relatively calm about the whole idea. But it's a very exciting <laughs> time for Spurs in general. Uh, yeah, it is. I mean, um, we've got a really sort of kind of interesting squad at the moment. I do worry whether or not it's deep enough, um, whether or not we have the, you know, the breadth of some of the other top flight clubs. Um, but, you know, it is exciting times and, we, and we're doing uh, well. But as always, it's frustrating when you see um, Tottenham lose to teams that they shouldn't lose to or draw to teams that they shouldn't have drawn to. Um, but I think that's what makes that's what makes you a Spurs fan. Um, and um, uh, but, I, you know, it, it is exciting and, and the ground is amazing. The stadium is amazing. It'd be nice to uh, see fans back in it soon. And I'm not just saying that as a season ticket holder, um, but, um, you know, it, I, I just hope that we're able to have fans at Wembley by the time we get to the cup final. It's an amazing stadium. I, I, I lived around the corner from where it now, you know, from the old White Hart Lane for a while. Um, and it's like, I, I, as I say, I support Nottingham Forest, but I went to watch Spurs play Wolves just before the lo lockdown one happened when you lost, I think it was 3-2 at home. And that stadium is like a spaceship has just landed in the middle of Tottenham. It's just the most amazing place. And obviously everyone has talked about the pints that fill up from the bottom and everything, but it's just such a... I love the fact that you can get in there early and you can stay afterwards. And it feels like the first football stadium, first club stadium that's built around actually treating football fans with a bit of respect and making it, was, it a nice place to be. It was really well thought through. Um, and, you know, I was lucky enough to be the sports minister at the time that the club was being developed. There were some issues um, uh, that the, the club and I were engaged in. Uh, and um, I got to see some of the programs, you know, the, the, the project development um, behind the scenes and everything was just really well thought through, you know, right through to things like the toilets yeah. in the stadium. Um, and, and actually I think the fan experience is now becoming something that is actually as important as the game. And, you know, it, it is something that I think people are really enjoying um, sort of at, at, not just at Tottenham, but around the world. And you pay for your ticket and of course you pay for your ticket to watch the game, but you want more than that from your ticket. So, and I think that's what Tottenham are doing incredibly well. And as a minister then, when stuff like that's happening, it must be great when you're in a position where you support a team and you're in government and you can kind of, I guess there are legal perks that you can enjoy. Um, but how, how much do governments get involved in, you know, when something like the new Spurs stadium or when Ashburton Grove, you know, when, when Arsenal were building the Emirates or should Chelsea leave Stamford Bridge or, you know, stuff like that. How much does government get involved in stuff like that? Well, it wouldn't, not on a local level. So the issue that um, was live when I was minister was around safe standing. Um, and what Tottenham wanted to show me was how they were effectively future-proofing um, the stadium for any potential changes in government or to make uh, standing where people were doing it without you know, permission safe. Um, and so that's why I got to go to 
the ground behind the scenes. It wasn't anything to do with, you know, planning permission or anything like that. Um, but, uh, um, but you know, I, I think that it is important that football clubs do engage with their local representatives and when necessary national representatives, because otherwise, you know, we make decisions that are very important to clubs who are at the heart of the community. Um, and, you know, sometimes potentially not, necessarily realize some of the ramifications of those um so it just so happens that i i have a good relationship not just actually with spurs i have an excellent relationship with spurs but other london clubs as well um because Even arsenal. Work that they've been, i have <laughs> i've been to many a game at arsenal albeit to watch tottenham play um uh with many tottenham supporting parliamentarians um but yeah now arsenal are important club and actually they do really good community work um to be fair to arsenal they do um I mean, it's, it, safe standing is an interesting issue because Hillsborough looms so large over any discussion about terracing in in British uh, stadia. Um, but safe standing, they've got it at Celtic. You know, you've got these rails and the seats can clip down. I mean, it, it's not like the old terraces. It, it does feel safe. I mean, do you think in the next five, you know, obviously we need to get beyond COVID, but in the next five to 10 years, obviously football club owners seem more concerned about the atmosphere within stadiums now and standing obviously helps improve that do you think that safe standing will become a, a kind of the norm in, in parts of big stadiums in England well the first thing I've always thought is it shouldn't be for a government minister to make these decisions you know at the end of the day every stadium is different um, they're governed by specific uh, rules um, and uh, uh, we have a sports ground safety authority that work very closely um, with local uh, officers and, and, and stadium contractors and so on to make sure that um, they are safe. And, and there are decisions that could be devolved, I think, on, on some of these um, areas. But there is really quite significant difference in views about standing in, in football grounds. And actually, you know, football stadia has changed quite significantly over the last 20 years or so. Um, it's a lot more family friendly. Um, and, you know, many people uh, don't want standing to return. But then there are a large number of people that do want standing to return. So it, it is a very difficult uh, decision uh, to make. But I just don't think that a minister, whoever that minister is in Whitehall, should be sitting there making a decision about whether or not, you know, Everton or you know Nottingham Forest or whoever you know has x number of railed seats I also think actually if you look at a ground like Tottenham um uh they've done their seating very differently so it's not locked um seats and I think that's what that that, that one of the concerns is around sort of kind of the locked railing um and things like that so which is is very different to what uh, Celtic have done so what's the difference then? I didn't, I didn't realise that, that technical difference. So what's the difference between... Well, the, the, uh, Spurs, Spurs, because so? you're not... Elect, well, Spurs, Spurs are doing uh, it at the moment under the, um, the, the rules that exist, obviously, for um, Premier League Stadium at the moment anyway. So you're not allowed to have um, seats. You have to have seats that are down. So what um, uh, Spurs have done is basically made it safe if people are going to stand. Um by putting rails in front. Um, whereas I think in other stadia, the seats are locked upwards. Um, yes. And so I think that's the sort of kind of difference. Because it's quite interesting. It, it, obviously, <laughs> for non-football listeners of this podcast, I'm probably going mad, but it is interesting about the role of government in these things. You know, who should decide? You know, you say it shouldn't be a government minister, but 
it would have to be taken at some sort of UK level, wouldn't it? I mean, it, we shouldn't just be left to a local authority to say, okay, we, we're going to let Everton have terracing and then other parts of the country wouldn't be allowed it. I mean, who, who should Well, no, I think ministers should make a principled decision about the issue of, of uh, seating uh, and, and, you know, whether or not we should look at the return of safe standing. I just always felt a bit uncomfortable about saying, right, Carrow Road can have, you know, 3,000 and, you know, Tottenham can have 15,000 or whatever. I just, I just, that's where I think the level of discomfort came from me. Um, I just think that there are better people who understand the, the technical issues around safety in stadium than a minister. Um, but I think at some point a decision will be made um, to say that uh, standing um, can in under certain circumstances uh, resume. But I think it has to be really well thought through um, and, you know, with all this, the appropriate safety in mind. And also to recognise that there are still a number of people who are really, really fundamentally against the return of standing in football clubs for very obvious reasons. So uh, as a Conservative then, what is the what is the kind of Conservative answer to, to issues like this in sport? I mean, I, I guess sort of in your answer that you, you trust the people who know best you know you give power to those that that, that that are the most informed but you know historically the conservative party wasn't necessarily seen as a, an ally of football supporters for all sorts of reasons i mean do, do you think that's changing no i think it's changed for many years i mean i i, I do it, I, I do hate the fact that people think that just because you're a tory you don't you know, like sport, or you don't know anything about sport, or the only sport that you do like is, you know, sort of kind of, you know, rugby and cricket, and you learnt it at Eton or something. It's just nonsense. You know, a lot of us grew up um, in in communities with proper community clubs. You know, I grew up in Hythe, um, and I used to go to Hythe in. Uh, uh, I got used to go to the Reachfield Stadium in Hythe, and then I used to go to watch Folkestone play and now I go and watch Chatham play but all non-league clubs you know and there's sort of kind of the the idea that sort of kind of um we hate sport and we don't understand it just drives me insane I mean maybe there are a lot of Tories that hate sport and don't understand it but I don't necessarily think that that's you know unique to the Tory party no but did you find that when you were a minister you know if you're dealing with football clubs or well, however you define stakeholders, or whatever, would they say, oh, but you're a conservative. I mean, you're not going to know about football, minister, that sort of thing. Actually, I used to get it more about being a woman. And, you know, and actually, it's, I, it's, I mean, it is frustrating. I, what, we kept a letter in my office because it made me laugh so much. Um, uh, but it was absolutely classic. It was uh, you know, things women know about uh, cooking, cleaning, having babies things women don't know about football and you know I don't know everything about football I'm not a stato I can't remember everything I do get things wrong um but I can tell you the offside rule and you know and I I can tell you what's a foul throw and I can tell you about the grassroots movement and I can tell you about the importance of academies and I can tell you about you know sort of kind of uh, other areas of, of politics and policy within football um but I couldn't tell you, you know, who scored the winning goal in the 1972, you know, sort of FA Cup final or something. You know you know, I, was, so... I was really hoping you were going to name a cup final that I did know the winning score of. Eh? <laughs> I, no. I can't say that. I just, you know, my brain just doesn't operate like that. But, um, but it is so, it wasn't so much that 
you as a Tory don't know anything about sport. It's more often you as a woman don't know anything about sport. Um, and that can be a bit sort of kind of uh, annoying sometimes. So who sent that in then, that thing, women's... So, <laughs> they weren't brave enough to put their name on it. Um, and in fact, they weren't brave enough to write in anything other than green ink. Um, so, you know, I mean, it was a complete, you know, uh, anonymous um, uh, letter. Um, but it was... The, a, Ars- you know... the, the Arsenal-headed notepaper might have been looking for <laughs> You know nothing about football because you support Tottenham. Um, but, um, uh, but, you know, and, and, but you do get this attitude sometimes from people and you do have to prove yourself a little bit. Um, and I'm always conscious that actually, you know, I will screw up on, on some things. I mean, you know, I may have even got something wrong already about safe standing. Um, but um, you, you just have to sort of kind of ride these things out and realise that actually as a politician you sometimes make mistakes you sometimes get things wrong you sometimes can't recall the facts instantly um and uh, but just carry on football's you know the people draw parallels between football and politics and all sport and politics at, at various points um but, but what they all share is you know they're, they're kind of binding things that if you're into it it doesn't matter you know obviously arsenal and spurs fans have a rivalry as rangers and celtic do but they they share the love of the sport and i guess that's something that binds people in politics together as well as well as the the tribal differences that exist between the two sides and your your speech after the queen's speech little over a year ago you you have a you have a jive at jeremy corbyn you set up the theme of of a sort of christmas pantomime you cast him as jacob marley and then there's a jive about him being an arsenal fan I, I seem to remember at the time he really didn't smile at all. He didn't seem to. He didn't. I mean, he just lost a general election quite badly, so maybe that was it. But have you ever have you ever spoken to him about Arsenal and Spurs? Did he did he get in touch with you afterwards? He was actually. I'm not sure he entirely got the joke. I was. I'm not sure he was listening to the whole thing. So I think he just thought I was calling him Old Marley. <laughs> um, but um, but it, it, we have spoken about Arsenal because. Um, Again, as minister, um, uh, and it, and bear in mind, John Burko was the speaker at the time who was an avid Arsenal fan. Um, I had to answer an adjournment debate on like a tribute to Arsene Wenger or something, some nonsense, and which Burko clearly did, thinking that that was hilariously funny. Um, and it was Hugh Merriman, who's the Tory MP for Bexhill Battle. It was his debate. And I was the minister that was responding to it. And then, you know, adjournment debates are normally the person doing the de- debate, Jim Shannon, um, who didn't intervene on that debate, who was he wasn't there. But normally it's the, 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 the proposer, one other person, the minister and the speaker. And that's it. Right? So nobody else comes in. All of a sudden, Jeremy Corbyn rocks up as leader of the opposition, sits down in front of his dispatch box on the other side and intervenes on Hugh Merriman to sort of kind of say something about, um, uh, to say something about Arsene Wenger. And then in my response, where I'm having to be nice as a lifelong Tottenham fan (laughs) to Arsene Wenger, he then intervenes on me and I'm like, oh, my God, this is the most nerve wracking thing ever, <laughs> because although you're on different sides, you still have sort of kind of obviously uh, 
a huge amount of respect for somebody who's become leader of their party and you're in the leader of the opposition interview intervenes on a lowly sports minister you know it's quite a nerve-wracking experience oh anyway Burko found the whole thing hilarious um and uh uh but I was you know I, I I was nice I was polite I didn't say anything rude um about Wenger um, oh, but I mean, you must have a lot of respect. For, I mean, I, you know, I was slightly fascinated by Wenger and the the changes he made to, to football in general. I mean, do you find it hard to to pay credit to the man? No, I have respect for him, but I also don't spend a lot of time caring. <laughs> you know, I mean, I live and I I work in a very very busy sort of kind of you know, job. I've got a family. I've got everything else and. Actually, there's only so much that I can spread myself around, so I don't really care very much. And Labour obviously have chosen another uh, Arsenal fan as their leader. Keir Starmer's an Arsenal fan as well, so this is... Is he? Is he? Oh, really? Well, I don't know. I mean, it's sort of kind of, you know, I I always find it slightly amusing when all of a sudden people that who have never been part of any kind of football fraternity suddenly um, appear to be supporting a a football club. I mean, I I, I don't... I, 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 one of the things I find most frustrating in politics is when somebody gets elected to a constituency yes. with a football club and all of a sudden they've become a lifelong fan of that football club. And like, it's just like, what? It's see-through. It's like yeah. people say to me, uh, my closest football club um, to my constituency is Gillingham. And I quite often get asked, why are you not a Gillingham fan? I'm like, because I didn't grow up here. You know, I, it's as simple as that. I didn't grow up in Gillingham. I'm a Tottenham fan. Do you want me to pretend to be a Gillingham fan? Um, and it's just like, I, it's see-through. I, you know I check the results to see how they've done, but that's about as far as it goes. It's been discussed on the show numerous times with previous guests, and I fully understand why politicians do it, because, you know, they're a lightning rod for the constituency. Why wouldn't you want the local team to do well? But I, I totally agree. I always find it so odd when politicians from a completely different part of the country then all of a sudden have this conversion and the standard shot, and it tends to be a male politician, of them still in the suit, but with the, the, the scarf tie. over the shoulders. You're like, what? With no a tie one. on. Don't forget yeah. the tie. Who goes to a football match in a full suit, but then just with a sort of club scarf over the top? I know, I know. But it's not just male colleagues as well. You know, you get female colleagues who go along and they've got their best sort of kind of outdoor, um, you know, scarf on and, and you know, a nice um, jacket and everything else. And, and as if they've just been also on a visit to somewhere else. And you just like, actually, for me, going to a football match is downtime. It's not, yes. it's not work. Um, I, it's lucky that for three and a half years you know I, I got to go and watch football as sports minister and many other sports you know for work but um at the end of the day when I'm here in the constituency and I go and watch Chatham or I nip over to the border and watch Maidstone you know or I head up to Tottenham it's because I want to watch football and if people come up to me and talk to me about politics that's fine you know it's an occupational hazard. They do it in Sainsbury's so they can do it, you know, at, at football ground. That's fine. But I'm I'm there to just, you know, basically watch people kick a ball for 90 minutes. 
so not wearing this kind of standard suit with it. So what do you wear? Stone Island, Aquascutum, sort of Burberry type clobber, kind of casual <laughs> as, if, as if I own anything like that. Um, no, I just wear <laughs> my normal clothes. And do people do people say, yeah, you're that sports minister. Yeah, sort, VAR, sort VAR out for us, minister. Come on, it's ruining the game. Oh, yeah, and they do. Um, and... Um, I used to love it when um, people used to write to me and uh, complain about, you know, the England manager or, um, you know, specific people involved in football or or whatever. And you sit and think, seriously, if I had the power to deal with that, then I am making my mum, you know, manager of England. You know, it's like, seriously, it's like if you have the power to fire, you have the power to hire. And, you know, we're not China. So, you know, let's let's not go down that route. Um, but um, but, you know, I mean, there's important issues and people are quite right to raise it. And VAR, let's I mean, it worked in our favour uh, last night, but let's not get into sort of kind of that. I mean, that's a very difficult, sticky issue for politicians. Yes. Uh, I mean, we've, we've kind of touched on this, but, you know, you kind of choose your football team early and you stick with it. You don't, you don't change. And, and that for for many people, that's an analogy in politics that, has, uh, that hasn't held in the last sort of five or 10 years. People's party affiliations have broken down in a way that their they're sporting ones perhaps never might. Um, so what made you become a conservative? At what age did you think this is the party for me? Well, the first thing to say is I completely agree with you, by the way, on the on on the tribal aspect of it and the fact that you do pick your team and you stick with your team and you go through ups and downs and the manager might change um, and some of the players around the, on the pitch will change around you and so on. But ultimately, you stick with the team um, and, and your level of involvement in that team, you know, it goes up and it goes down. Um, but um, ultimately, you know, you, you do stay with that and and. Some people have their team forced upon them by their parents, um, <laughs> uh, and uh, and that's you know obviously the same in in, in politics. And, and some people don't, and I didn't uh, in in either respect. Um, uh, although I am making my son wear Tottenham shirts, um, <laughs> but um, uh, but I didn't really. I didn't grow up in a particularly political family. Um, I, I don't recall significant. Uh, discussions about major political events that were happening when I was growing up in the 80s and early 90s and uh, I don't recall you know there being long conversations at home about elections or the way parent was voting or or anything like that so I would say just general circumstance and school um, probably helped shaped my uh, views on certain things I started doing a-level politics um, at the end of Thatcher and the beginning of Major. And um, I was really quite taken at the time by John Major. Um, and what you've got to bear in mind is that at the time it was Major and Kinnock. And so the Lay Party was very different. Um, and John Major's Tory, One Nation Tory party really sung to me. Um, it, it, you know, I was from a single parent background, not deprived, but low income. And I could see the sort of kind of journey that he had taken into politics and and it made it feel quite accessible to someone like me. Um, I was also at grammar school, so really very, uh, felt strongly about meritocracy. 
um, and opportunity and, and things like that. So I think it was more a sort of coming together of things at a particular time rather than something that was, you know, being shoved down my throat by parents or or, or anybody else. Um, and um, and it stayed with me ever since. That's something I've asked many moderate conservatives of, of your generation is, do you think if you were five years younger, you'd have been sort of taken with new Labour? I, I don't know the answer to that. Um, I, I think it's impossible to answer that. But I do, I do, I am one of these Tory MPs that doesn't sit there and think that everything that new Labour did was bad. Um, and nor do I think that everything they did was good. But, you know, there are certain things that actually I was quite comfortable with um it, and I think any one nation Tory would have been quite comfortable with um for example sure start centers um in deprived communities um those kind of one-stop hubs which really reached out to to people in certain areas um you know I understand some of the administrative sort of kind of criticism of them but ultimately in the day I thought that they were actually really quite a good initiative yeah, it was one of the things the coalition government got rid of, which was really, for, you know, for those of us that, that really valued Sure Start, um, seemed odd. You know, with David Cameron talking about a big society and talking quite one nation language, I thought it was a strange decision to kind of get rid of those. Well, I suspect it, it, it was as part of the wider kind of um, focus on the economy and, and trying to get the... the the finances under control and again I completely understand and respect that too but you know I I I I think the sort of kind of the point is is that I don't know whether or not I would have been new labour um but I do know that I don't necessarily think that just because it's something was introduced by new labour that I thought it was necessarily bad. So after you graduate from university you work for a couple of MPs which MPs did you work for? I worked for a complete mix. Um, I, I ended up actually, well, I first started working for Walter Sweeney, who was the MP for the Vale of Morgan. Um, and he was quite a right-wing um, uh, Tory MP. Um, but I also worked for uh, people like Tim Devlin, who was in Stockton South, who was a One Nation Tory. I worked for Michael Howard, who was my home MP, Folkestone yeah. Home MP. Um, and I worked for a couple others. And actually on election night, um, in 1997, uh, I had worked for five MPs up to that point, and Michael was the only one that survived. Um, so I don't know if that was a good thing or a bad thing. Um, anyway, he was kind enough to give me a, a job um, uh, with him after the election, and so I carried on working with him for a, about another year after the 97 election. He's one of those people that I've been, I was really surprised. I used to work for a Labour MP called Paddy Tipping, um, sort of around early the early to mid noughties and he always talked about how nice Michael Howard was, and I was like, I was sort of raised as a Labour guy, and was like, I thought Michael Howard was basically as you know despicable as the Tory Party got. But the amount of Labour MPs that would say, no, 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 he's a gentleman, he's a really lovely bloke, very reasonable, and I was like, it was one of sort of my first experiences in realising that things aren't always as they seem. I, I think that's the thing with politics is that actually what what you see in terms of politicians making decisions, changing policy, standing up in the bear pit that is the House Common Chamber and everything else, the sort of kind of that side of things is very different to who the people are um, behind the scenes. And ultimately, in the, the day, we are still all people, but we're just doing jobs. And, and Michael, 
um, had a really bad, you know, sort of kind of national uh, reputation through things like the poll tax and obviously his work that he was doing as Home Secretary. But he is a lovely man and he treated everyone with respect. Um, he would listen very reasonably and rationally to to discussion, to arguments. He welcomed people from other parties uh, into his office to talk to him about uh, issues. Um, I remember he was shadow foreign secretary at the time and uh, it, after the, the election. And, you know, he had a, a very reasonable working relationship with uh, Robin Cook um, at the time and, and his team uh, behind uh, a team of advisors behind him. Um, and so, you know, it's not it's not always what you see. Um, and I think you, as you know, as an MP, I, I try to treat everyone um, in the way that I would like to be treated. And I think that if you treat people with respect and you're kind to them and you're nice to them and you're polite and you say please and thank you, then you tend to get that respect in return. I mean, people also talk about, you know, a, a level of self-respect in politics and whenever people sort of think about the modern era there seems to be I think a, a general concern about populism and a kind of shamelessness around the truth and things and um Estelle Morris's resignation is often mentioned as a kind of a, a kind of gold standard of a minister who set themselves a target and said if I don't meet it I'm going to go but also I think about your resignation over over gambling and fixed odds betting terminals as sometimes a, a sort of story takes you completely by surprise and the minister says I, I can't sort of staying in this government and it wasn't a row that was brewing it wasn't about brexit or you know which wing of the party people were on people just take a principled stand and i think people really appreciate that so it wasn't that long ago that you resigned from the government was that a difficult decision actually no which is <laughs> why which is why it was right yeah. you know i i i think sometimes what you 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 know, you make decisions in life and you worry about them, whether or not you've made the right or the wrong decision. And the fact that I have never worried about whether or not I made the right or the wrong decision probably shows that it was the right decision. And actually, it was the right decision because it ended up forcing a change in policy. Um, but um, I, I, you know, I, I've never felt so calm about something. And I remember getting home, um, having... I was in Westminster when I made the res resignation and I, I drove home and I remember getting home and, and just feeling, you know, enormously calm um, about the whole thing. And, and in a way it's like, you know, it is like dumping somebody. Right? And, and if you <laughs> think, it by text. If you, no, I didn't do it by text, <laughs> um, but <laughs> yeah, it's not, I did it on Instagram. Um, the, um, it, it it is um it, it is seriously like dumping somebody and if you think about those those relationships that you've ended in the past where you've th thought oh have i made the right decision or could i have done it differently could i have been kinder or have did it was it too soon or did i not give it a chance i never had any of that um and so and and even today um i still get emails from people thanking me for changing their life um or saving their life um and and therefore i i i will never regret it it's that time of the year your vacation is coming up you can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze relax and think about work 
You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Before we get in just to the detail of it, just to stay on the analogy of it being like a breakup, Theresa May was the Prime Minister at the time then. So did she do the whole thing? You know, I can change. You know, I'll, I'll spend more time with you. Did she, like a sort of spurned lover, try and change your mind? No, no, quite, <laughs> no. Which is actually probably why I don't regret it, because no, she didn't do that. Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, for listeners who may who may not know, I mean, that's sort of kind of the, the sequence of events was that we had published a gambling review in May. And in that gambling review, we had made it clear that we were going to change uh, the policy on the amount of money you could stake on a fixed or betting terminal, which were the, the, the high speed casino content machines that you got in bookmakers from a hundred pounds to two pounds. Um, the spin on a on a fobty, as they're known, um, is every twenty seconds. So you could technically lose three hundred quid in a in a uh, minute, and people were and and you know they were very addictive. People called them the crack cocaine of um, uh, of machines and so so on. And um, we'd gone through a very long process and and agreed to change the state down to two pounds. Um, the idea was that that was going to be implemented because it's a duty. It, it comes down to the sort of kind of the Treasury. So the policy was DCMS, but the actual stake change and duty change came under the Treasury. Uh, the policy was going to be implemented in April um, the following year, which was hard. But I can understand the sort of kind of the process and the budgetary uh, structures that we had. Um but then the then Chancellor Philip Hammond decided he wanted to delay it until the October. And people were like, it's only six months. It doesn't matter and everything else. But actually, it really did matter because once it becomes six months, then it can be delayed again. And if you think about 2019 and the, the, the disruption that we had to budgets and finance bills and legislation, it easily could have been pushed into the long grass. And I wasn't prepared to stand for that. I, you know, we had made the decision to reduce the stake. It needed to come in as soon as possible. Uh, and therefore any push into uh, any delay was something I couldn't accept. And, and therefore that was why I made the decision to resign. And did you warn them? Did you say, look, if you delay it, I'm going to have to go? Yes, of course. Did they... <laughs> just do it out the didn't well... do it out the blue. I didn't just send up an airplane with a you know a, a, a banner on the back saying, "Oh, by the way, P.S. I resigned." Um, yeah, we had very lengthy conversations uh, about it, and people. I think two things: people didn't get the severity of the problem. Don't think that they thought that uh, it was a real issue, um, and that this was um, uh, just me being sort of kind of passionate or mm. emotional 
<laughs> about the issue issue and secondly I don't think they thought that I would resign um because I loved my job I had you know I've always said that I had the best job in government and I did I was sports minister yeah. for goodness sake you know I was dealing with some of the most incredible uh uh, parts of government I, I was doing sport I was doing loneliness I worked with the charity and youth sectors um, you know I had um, a great great portfolio and I just think people thought I wouldn't give it up and yet I don't think that they therefore know me well enough if they thought that that was the case. So when you say to Theresa May, look, Prime Minister, if this gets delayed, I'm going to resign. Would she say, oh, OK, I'll think about it? Or would she say, Tracy, you're not going to resign? You know, how, how would the talks go? No, well, it, I mean, you don't necessarily talk. To, I can't remember if I spoke to her director about resignation, um, but certainly the t- in the team. Um, and, it, you know, it was quite often, but it's just six months. It's just six months. And I think that was where they they got the, the thing wrong. They got their, their their thinking wrong about it. So then what's the moment you resigned then? So the, Philip Hammond makes an announcement and then did you have a kind of resignation drafted? And then do you email it? Do you tweet it? At that point, do you kind of go, have I done the right thing? So um, I had been in Washington um, the, 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 day, the, few, the days before um, and I'd flown back overnight uh, on the Wednesday into Thursday. And the Thursday was um, the finance bill. And by this point, others had started to, to kind of realise the, the issue, uh, recognise the issue. Uh, so Ian Duncan Smith and Carolyn Harris and others in the party who were very concerned about it had started to raise questions. And through it was evolving throughout the day as as a as an issue and we had been told that there would be a state some sort of comment um in the winding up speech that would hopefully satisfy any concerns okay and so um ian made an intervention uh, uh on the minister um and the reply came back that was complete opposite or contrary to what we had been told was going to be said and so at that point um i sent my letter to um gavin barwell who was um theresa's chief of staff and i had been told that the minute i'd been advised that the process is the minute you offer your resignation it is accepted there yeah. there is no please don't it is it, it that's it yeah. so i had obviously already drafted my resignation and and I I'd been waiting and and the the response was not good enough at the dispatch box so the resignation was sent and it was accepted and just on that thing of it basically it was been accepted was that just a rule that Theresa May had or is that I I don't rule? I don't know but that's what I was told if you offer your resignation it is accepted and then so in that moment then it, it uh, must be I'm just on Ian Duncan Smith then was he backing you up was he was he sort of on your yeah, side over the yeah 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 Lo- loads of colleagues backing me up and to be honest with you so um uh, uh, not a lot of people necessarily know this but 
actually the prime minister has been was was one of my strongest allies on this issue the current prime the, minister the, or the, the current prime minister boris sorry johnson. i should say yeah. boris johnson was strongest ally, and and had been a when he was in cabinet had been a very strong supporter because he'd seen the devastation of these machines when he was mayor of london um and uh, Newham Council had long been one of the leaders of um, change uh, on on the machines, um, and so he he was very well aware of of what was going on. Anyway, that was a complete aside to the to the day itself. But there were lots of colleagues um, who are from this you know One Nation or the Social Justice Caucus or you know very much uh, uh, represents constituency with. Um, deprived communities who were very concerned about the machines and so there was a very strong swelling of, of support uh, on this and actually others uh, with strong faith um, uh, were also um, uh, supportive so when we got the policy change one of the architects of the policy change was Jacob Rees-Mogg um, and um, who who with other colleagues who um, uh, have very strong faith convictions um was very keen to make sure that we brought the policy changes in from that perspective um so there was a very strong sort of kind of cross-party support for change in in the conservative party and then once you resign then and you send it to gavin Barr, when you're like i'm out you know <laughs> do, you, do you have to go in and clear your desk at the at the department or is that all it's all done for you it's all done for you and and to be fair um I had a I had an excellent private office. Um, I trusted them. They knew what the score was. They knew what was going to happen. Um, there is, uh, as a minister, you, you know, you have to recognise that the civil service is there to support the minister, not you, Tracy Crouch or whoever else is there. Um, and it is, you know, the king is dead. Long live the king. Um, and you just have to not take that personally. And I didn't. Um, and um, and they were brilliant, um, both my private office and the, and the wider DCMS teams. Um, but I've been there for three and a half years and I show a great deal of respect to all the officials that I've worked with. And did Theresa May get in touch after and say, I'm really sorry you're gone, you know, the door's open or? No. <laughs> <laughs> because when you talk about all these things, you know, faith, and uh you know protecting you know this almost a sort of not quite paternalistic but you know that sort of great conservative tradition of um you know protecting people from harm and things these feel like things that really you could be describing the sorts of things Theresa may you would expect oh oh I sh no i should be absolutely clear i think she was 100 percent behind the policy change in terms of um state reduction um the 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 issue was not the policy in terms of reducing it from £100 to £2, that was done. I mean, that that was an argument that was won. Um, it was the actual implementation uh, date. And that was when it became a Treasury issue. Um, and I just think people didn't understand that six months in the life of an addict or somebody who is going to fall victim to these machines is an incredibly long time. And, and for you then, your, your your sort of emotional investment in that debate, did that just come to you while you held that brief and as a result of, you know, people lobbying you, you realised this? Or did you have sort of skin in the game before before taking on the red box? I, I had seen um, the issue uh, increase in my constituency. Um, I, it, Chatham has some really 
deprived parts to it and the bookmakers were opening shops in the most deprived communities not in the more affluent parts um, so there had already been a growing level of concern I'd already spoken in debates um, about the issue um, before becoming a minister um, and actually you know made it very clear when I was at the dispatch box as a minister that a red box hadn't changed my mind on the matter but it was right and appropriate to go through full evidence-based reviews because you know my view on something is not enough to change policy it has to be based on on evidence and harm and so on what solidified my uh view during my time as minister was meeting some of the addicts in person you know i i didn't meet anyone who had a gambling addiction who hadn't contemplated suicide um and um there are wider issues i mean we this isn't just about one particular product there are wider issues in terms of gambling addiction and how we deal with them in the in this country but it was something that will always stay with me i i i remember those meetings as if they were yesterday couldn't tell you what i had for breakfast but i can tell you what those meetings were like and how i felt after them and jacob reese mogg was an ally in that particular um issue it sounds it, not always necessarily been that helpful to you uh, in the last year or so Jacob Rees-Mogg I mean it, people were quite shocked that he wouldn't let you take part in that debate because uh, you know particularly as it being about cancer and, and you battling it and for you know good reason not being able to make it into the Commons chamber but people felt that he was unnecessarily punitive towards you it wasn't just towards me I mean I think again <laughs> I always try to be fair <laughs> to people. I think uh, the issue is, is that obviously um, at the beginning of the pandemic, we were able to all participate in a virtual um, way. As things changed and restrictions loosened, Jacob quite rightly was saying that we are encouraging the rest of the country to go to work. Therefore, members of parliament should participate more in person than in virtual and therefore limited our virtual participation in parliament to questions and statements. So not to debate. Uh, and then um, there was a lot of questions about that as to whether or not that was fair. But Jacob was very firm about it. But then there was a debate on breast cancer in Westminster Hall. And obviously, due to my personal circumstances and the fact that I wanted to raise some of the learnings um, that I've uh, I've gained as a consequence of going through this personal experience, I want to speak in it. And that was where the sort of kind of disagreement with Jacob um, began. Um, now, the issue uh, is that well there's there's several issues because these things are never simple but Westminster Hall itself is not capable of of actually being able to host virtual proceedings so even if we were allowed to participate in debates in principle we wouldn't I wouldn't have been able to participate in that particular debate because of the infrastructure challenges um not that I I mean I still think those could be overcome yeah, but that was taking a laptop <laughs> whacking a telly. Can't be that hard, can it? <laughs> whacking a telly and get some good broadband. Yeah. Um, but um, but anyway, that was that was that particular answer. What what my intervention did make Jacob do was change his position on those of us who are deemed clinically extremely vulnerable. 
now I hate that term for me I, I just I, I, I've never recognized myself as somebody who is vulnerable but um, uh, he changed his position on uh, that and and actually made it clear that he was going to allow the clinically extremely vulnerable to participate in debates of course that definition is quite narrow and there are a lot of colleagues who feel uncomfortable about coming to Parliament, not because they're clinically extremely vulnerable, but perhaps because they have other underlying health conditions, um, maybe their age profile, um, maybe they live with somebody who's clinically extremely vulnerable. And so then there was this almighty row about why is it just for people like me and not for others, and therefore then nothing happened. Um, or at least until we then went into tier four and national lockdown, and now we're all allowed to participate in debates. So it was all a bit of an unnecessary row, but um, and I just happened to be at the centre of it. Uh, you're at the centre of it because you were diagnosed with breast cancer in, in June last year and have had chemotherapy. Um, you've told people to check their bits and bobbins. Um, <laughs> sort of... Um... <laughs> Sort of one way of putting it, I guess. I, I, I mean, these are quite I delicate to, debates, I, but people have to check themselves. I mean, what language do you use? Well, and also, I wanted to be um, sort of fairly gender neutral as well, because um, although I've been diagnosed with breast cancer, it was in the middle of of what a time when people are also still really concerned about. Um, getting seen by GPs or getting treatment for cancer and and I want men to check their prostates and I also want men to check their their breasts um, you know I, I speak regularly now with a, a man who is going through breast cancer um, so I wanted to be as gender neutral as as possible and bits and bobbins just well it was very crouch put it that way um, Peter very and, Peter crouch <laughs> I don't know about that but it, it was just it was very me and and it got the message out there and it, it just with your own experience um I mean finding it did were you someone who was checking was that was that something where you know previous campaigns had got through to you and and as a result of other people saying check your bits and bobbins you thought I'm going to check regularly or no, actually, I'd, I'd always been a bit squeamish um, uh, to check my breasts. And I mean, I did. I didn't know if I was doing it correctly. Um, but, um, you know, I, it, it's, it is something that sometimes just makes you, you know, one of those things that you just feel a little bit ick about. Um, and um, but I mean, I was doing it, but perhaps not regularly. Uh, and then uh, but actually finding the lump and uh, and making you know for me it was actually quite an obvious lump to find um and making it clear that uh, you you do need to do this so that it's not too late I mean I was lucky I found my lump when I did I was lucky the kind of lump it was it was um a, a fairly long uh lump um at the top of my breast whereas a lot of people have p-shaped lumps you know sort of kind of hidden within their breast tissue um and and i think those are harder to find um but actually getting an awareness out there about checking yourself and 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 coming to terms with the fact that it it might be a bit uncomfortable and you might be a bit squeamish about it but it's really important to do it and the reason why it's important to do it is if you, you know, the sooner you find it, the sooner you get onto the treatment programmes, the better your outcomes will be. And uh, I mean, of all the years 
to to be going through this, you know, in 2020 when, and we're still in 2021, you know, and this feels like a point of sort of maximum danger really in 2021, the amount of people that are now infected with COVID. It must have been hard enough anyway, discovering you have cancer, going through the emotional and, and physical process of, of, of removing it and, and chemotherapy and everything. In a way, with, with COVID in the background, does that make it easier or harder? Or is that not a helpful way to think about it? Um, well, actually, it's, it's been quite mixed. I mean, a lot of people do assume that it's been a really bad time to have it. But actually, in many respects, I, I'm not so sure about that. For starters, you know, many people who I know who've gone through cancer in the past have felt quite isolated um, as a consequence of their treatment programme. You know, sometimes you do have to be incredibly careful. You have to stay away from events and you might not feel well enough to go to things and, and so on. But all these things haven't been happening. So in terms of feeling like I'm missing out on anything, I'm not at all. Um, uh, so, I, I, you know, I, I don't have that kind of sense of, of you know, oh, gosh, I've gone through this um, that others might have had at different times. Um, also, uh, certainly the trust where I am, they, they've continued with their cancer um, surgery. Um, but because there have been changes in other uh, surgeries, the, the, the treatment has actually been slightly faster um, because theatres have been clearer. So um, because other elective surgery wasn't necessarily going ahead, you know, lumpectomies and, and other uh, treatment, cancer treatments could go ahead. So, you know, it's, it's not been all bad uh, is perhaps one way of, of putting it. The other thing is that, um, this is very selfish of, of me, um, but uh, a lot of people said, has it been hard not having your other half at appointments? Because uh, obviously you're only allowed to go by yourself. And the answer is no. <laughs> um, not because I actually, you know, not, not because I don't love him or I don't want him there or anything else. But sometimes when you go to these things, you end up worrying about what they are thinking and how they're coping with the news rather than actually just thinking about it from your your own perspective um so uh so i it, you know it's not been a glamorous or pleasant or experience and i wouldn't wish it on anyone but it's also not been you know horrible hideous um either and and kind of because you're a politician and obviously a former minister you're kind of dealing with it publicly in a way that a lot of, um, you know, cancer patients won't be dealing with it. I mean, do you, do you think that brings an added pressure or in, in a way, does that help? Does that give you a sense that you can help other people that are going through it? Um, I, th to be honest with you, it's the latter. I think helping other people is really important. And um, I, I don't get me wrong. I mean, at times there would have been, I would love to have just curled up under the du duvet and sort of kind of crawled out when it was all over. Um, but um I also like the fact that I've been able to reach out to other people that are going through it. And I've had numerous emails um, from people saying um, that they were about to start chemotherapy. They were really scared, but they saw me on the TV and, you know, I've sort of kind of perhaps taken away a bit of stigma around it. Um, I'm chemo buddy now to a few people who've got in touch completely, you know, complete strangers, people I've never met, I've never spoken to, both here in Kent and beyond. Um, 
I'm a chemo buddy to a man um, who's going through it. Um, and so actually, um, it's it's been nice to be able to sort of, kind of have that platform and be able to say to people, look, we all have this vision of what chemotherapy is. You know, we, we all... I don't know where it comes from. I don't know if we once saw a film or a you know TV program or something, but we all have this vision about it. And it doesn't, it's not always like that. And you can, in some circumstances, no, it's not for everyone, you can still work, you can still live a life, you can still get up every day, um, you can still jump on a exercise bike and things like that. And I think, you know, I'm not trying to be a I'm not trying to be a hero. I don't want to be a hero. Um but you know, it. I think it, helping others realise that it's not that picture that you have in your head about it has been something that I've been able to to, to give through the public platform that I've got. That's a really good point. That about is there a film we've all seen? I think it probably is just that people know cancer is really serious, and we talk about it really seriously and rightly so as a society. But perhaps we're all a bit squeamish of asking details, and therefore it's kind of. It's, it's a mystery, I guess, it, it, for so many people. They just know that chemotherapy is... And in a way, they fill in the blanks themselves. You know, they don't know what it actually entails, but they go, God, it, it sounds flipping, you know, hard. I think that's true. And I think the thing is, as well, is that we we perhaps only ever see or hear the sad stories about cancer. You only ever hear the stories... I mean, if I open a local newspaper... I see the story about the young mum who's tragically died, leaving two children and a family and everything else. And they're they're desperately sad stories. You don't see all the stories of all the other people that have gone through cancer and are still living. And one of the things that um, you know, when I when I made the statement, one of the things that's really nice was the number of people who got in touch to say. I had it 23 years ago or, you know, I had it five years ago or I was also at Maidstone Hospital and they did X, Y, Z or, you know, and, and actually that they really, they themselves were, you know, inspiring messages for me to receive. Cause don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm petrified about it coming back. Um, uh, uh, but you, you read these other people's stories. And now the, the difference is, is that these people are behind an email, they're behind a laptop. I can prove that you can still go on living by just being there in public and, you know, still going out and people seeing me and everything else. So, um, so I, I think, you know, I've, I've got a, a lot, I don't, I don't want to be defined as that MP who had cancer, but at the same time, I do think I now have a bit of a responsibility to show that, you know, there, the outcomes are good. Obviously, one of the downsides of, of being a public, uh, someone with a public profile dealing with this is that sometimes um, your photo can be misused as it was on the BBC website. Uh, <laughs> they used, I mean, I, I don't know how it happened, but the BBC News website used your photo for a story about Peter Sutcliffe. Um, <laughs> I, I, I mean, it's not like there's any sort of similarity in any way. You know? I, do, I think perhaps somebody in the Digi team just hadn't had their morning coffee. Um, but, it, you know, it, it was, I was quite amused by it, to be honest with you. Something that I found funny. Um, but uh, And screenshot it and sent it to every member of my family. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, um, yeah, these things happen. 
Did they, did they get in touch and apologise? No, no, they didn't. But um, but honestly, I, I mean, I, I I wasn't offended. I I was amused for the thing else. But you're right. I mean, you're right in terms of um, uh, appearance and and I mean, I haven't gone down the route of wearing wigs. Um, I haven't tried. Well, you're a Tory, not a wig. Yeah, <laughs> niche joke for your listeners. Yeah, I mean, um, you, can, you can use that in any sort of after dinner speeches if you like. <laughs> that one's on the house. I'll just write it down in this notepad next to me right now. Oh no, hang on, it's not there. Um, the um, uh, but I haven't tried to hide the appearance, and um, uh, in some respects, I'm quite liking my kind of bald head, you know, look at the moment, it's especially when. Um, in, in our own village, um, uh, probably about six weeks ago, there was some youth misbehaving and trying to smash in some posters. Um, and uh, I, I was just like, oi, did you pay for those? And they kind of like looked at me and say, all right, we're not taking this one on um, and scarpered. Um, whereas normally, you know, with my normal MP hair, I would have probably got a bit of abuse back. <laughs> That's nice to know there are sort of positive side effects. Uh, you also had, as well as being a Spurs fan, you're, you're a fan of the Green Bay Packers, the NFL team. One of their stars sent you a, a get well message. How on earth did that happen? Well, that's top secret, how how it happened. But the fact it happened, uh, no, I have a good relationship with the NFL. Um, big American football fan. Um, I've spent many um, uh, a year banging on to the NFL uh, team that the Packers need to come over to one of the London games. Um, and so when they heard that I was poorly, they um, spoke to Aaron and uh, Aaron Rodgers, their quarterback, likely to be the MVP. Um, and um, uh, uh, he was kind enough to film the um, for the piece. Um, I There's also... Um, uh, somebody um, who is a constituent who has very good connections as well. So, okay, that's the, um, that's the kind of that's the crucial. Some high-powered local lobbyist, uh, just a local billionaire who was a friend. Of no, mine. God, <laughs> you don't know my constituency if you uh, uh, if, if you think that's the case. <laughs> um, because NFL, I, you know what? I've I love America. And I love going to New York, and I've been. You know, there my... is more to America than New York. Man. Oh, I know, I know, and I, I will try to go to the other bits. But I really, really like New York, and I've been to see basketball there, and ice hockey, and baseball. I've never been there when the NFL season's been on, and I thought, oh, you know what? I should try and get into American football. But as a as a football football fan, and as someone who's not mad on rugby, I, 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 I like the dazzling nature of it. It looks like showbiz in sport form. So it, it, it's really, there's something really exciting about it. But what should my route, I mean, as a Spurs fan, obviously you're at an NFL stadium as well. As a, as a kind of very English football fan, what is my route into NFL? Is there a way well, that I can the, get into watch it? Watch the Super Bowl. Watch the Super Bowl. Okay. And, and I think that will change your mind. I mean, I think the thing is, is what you just said doesn't make sense because you said you've been to see baseball. Um, yeah. uh, uh, but as a as a soccer fan, you can't like American football. Well, that's like saying, well, I like, you know, as a, a cricket fan, I can't like baseball. And yet you've seen baseball. So um, it was more you know, for the kind of hot dogs and the massive like two know, litre baseball. Cokes and stuff. Yeah, baseball is fun. I went to see the Red Sox in um, at Fenway Park in Boston, um, wow. and I don't really remember any of the game. Just people bringing you hot dogs and nachos the entire yeah, time. It's great. great. <laughs> um, 
but um uh but i mean I, I, american football live is fantastic and if you get if any if you or any of the listeners get to go to any of the london games you'll love it um it is that what we were talking about earlier in terms of the fan experience american football does that brilliantly um it's not just about the ticket for the game um you know the tailgate parties the before the after the entertainment during that's what american football is about now there are those of us in westminster that you know are sort of kind of more fans of the of the sport and and get involved in things like fantasy american football and things like that i just like to point out that i came second uh, uh in the season uh, well, how, nearly, how many people were in that league though because that depends on oh, how 16, impressive it six, okay 16. so not like there's two of you no 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 yeah thanks um <laughs> but um uh but you know uh test and tracy which was the name of my team very um nice. did very very well this year um but you know there are there are some sort of kind of technical bits to american football and it can be you know you can put people off and i understand that and it can be a bit bitty uh and you know if you're watching it particularly if you're watching it on American TV, you know, there's a commercial break every time there's a break in play. That can be quite frustrating. But actually, Sky uh, do a really good sort of kind of Sunday night programme um, and it keeps you well entertained. Uh, you've played football, you know, you play with the, with the women's team and, and, in the, and in the mixed team as well. And the, the FA withdrew their um, sort of refereeing team because it broke the rules. Have you tried playing American football? Yeah, I've, I mean, I've literally I've played every sport. Um, the uh, I I actually grew up playing American football um, in in our own way. So again, go back to my age, like early eighties. People will remember that American football was on Channel Four. Yeah, it was massive, um, and it was huge. And so uh, I, we played um, the, the area I grew up in. It was all boys, apart from me and my sister. Um, and so we played sport all the time and, and we were these kind of kids that we played on the streets and you'd shout car and you'd stop playing and then you'd <laughs> carry on playing again. Um, and, you know, the, the streets were a lot quieter then anyway. But, yeah, played a lot of American football as a kid. And it, it, just on the subject of real, actual, football, proper football, um, what sort of player are you then? Are you, are you, who would you compare yourself to? What's your playing style? Um, I was always the cleanest uh, player. Um, a bit of a goody yeah. two shoes. <laughs> no, sorry. By well, uh, by cleanest I mean as in the least muddiest. Um, oh, I see. So the laziest. <laughs> I was a striker. <laughs> um, I, I, I was always up front or on the wing, and I would never go in for a tackle. Um, the only time I went in for a tackle when I was at university, I ended up with a stud in my knee. Um, and um, uh, uh, but I I used to get mocked because I'd literally um, come off the pitch and I'd have like two tiny bits of mud on my knees where somebody had tackled me and I'd fallen over. Um, but uh, you know, I I was um, I, I was a, I was a good goal scorer. Um, I always had an eye for the, for for the um for the back of the net and and I could always I can kick um so I used to I, I used to take the free kicks and I used to take the corners um and um I you know mid-90s women's football was still really young and and actually being able to get the ball into the penalty area from a from a corner kick um was something that was you know 
respected and, and appreciated. And I do sometimes look at professional players, male professional players who can't get the ball onto the penalty spot from a corner kick and think that, you know, they should be fined. Um, but, uh, but that's for another day. It is. Um, I mean, Spurs are still in the title race. So just in closing, what, what do you think is more likely? Spurs winning the league this year or um, this government hitting their targets on vaccinating too many people a week? <laughs> I'm not. Do you know what? I'm just not going to. That's a mean question, Matt. That's a mean question. Both is going. Both are going to happen. There we are. I'm going to be I'm sort of characteristically... Uh, uh, optimistic and so both are going to happen okay and, and who's the better leader jose Mourinho or boris johnson oh come on could you imagine could you i, I would, i'd like to see them swap jobs for a day <laughs> well i'll tell you what an amazon prime documentary that gave access all areas to boris johnson's downing street operation would be brilliant telly it'd be it'd be brilliant but i i without meaning to sort of kind of drop <laughs> drop names i was actually on a zoom with um jose Mourinho, <gasps> um and um uh, myself and and some some colleagues, um, and um, it, it, it a colleague asked a question about why he had decided to play a particular player for in a particular position for a, a, a certain amount of time. And Jose, I won't do the I won't do the accent, um, despite in my head I'm doing the accent. Um, basically, said something along the lines of. Um, uh, I like politics, but I basically don't question the decisions that you take in politics and or you make in politics. And it was just such a brilliant slapdown. It was just like, seriously, you know, I, I read the newspaper and I understand what's going on, but that's not going to qualify me to, um, you know, decide that we should be doing X, Y, Z in, in legislation terms. So don't ask me how long I'm going to play a certain player in a certain position for. Um, it was wonderful. And who was it who'd asked the question? I am never ever Aww. revealing that. <laughs> okay, we'll it, was, next time. it was it was it was beautiful and it was it was, you know, very Jose. Tracy, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. There you go, Tracy Crouch. I mean the frustration that you can't take part in some of those debates virtually. Not just as a result of decisions, which it sounds like now are being dealt with, but that the technical capability doesn't exist. I mean, just taking a laptop. I'm sure it's more... I say I'm sure it's more complicated than that. I'm not necessarily sure that I am sure of that. But uh, what a fantastic guest. And surely someone who has a big government career ahead, obviously. I just found that conversation about the resignation so fascinating because it was such a good point of principle. Um, you can't help but feel that she'll be back in the not-too-distant future, but who knows? There may well be a government reshuffle in the coming weeks and months, so we shall watch with interest if if Tracy is uh, uh, back on the front bench after that. But a great conversation. I'm not entirely sure. I mean, I do want to... I, I, I kind of want to get into NFL for the reasons that we discussed, that it's exciting and I like American stuff. So if any of you are NFL fans, maybe you can maybe you can help out with the routine political party podcast at gmail.com. And while I have you all, of course, don't forget to leave a review on iTunes. That can be your good deed for the year. That can be your New Year's resolution is to leave five star reviews of the political party on whatever podcast platform you consume it on. Um, so a happy new year in the circumstances, as we said at the start, uh, which are very difficult. Um, but 
I should continue podcasting to give you some political escapism that uh, is, at times, depending on what's happening in the news, uh, may do a bit of COVID stuff. But I am quite keen to focus on non-COVID things if and where possible and, and just do more of the... The personal stuff's always the more interesting about why people do things and how they got into stuff and what happened behind the scenes, um, as well as the policy stuff, which is obviously very important. Um, I'm just rambling now, but I think it's my first one back, so I'm a bit rusty, so I shall not ramble anymore. Happy New Year. Um, thank you to Tracy Crouch. Thank you to you for downloading this, and I'll see you next week. Ta-ra. 